Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. Mitch McConnell will be the Senate's top Republican no more. It's Wednesday, February 28th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a decades-long saga in the world of video games continues. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth updates a 1997 gaming classic, but beyond cashing in on nostalgia game's also coming out at a pivotal time for its developers, whom we'll hear from in about 20 minutes. Also, President Biden and former President Trump don't have any serious chance of losing their primaries, but they're both facing protest votes in the form of Republicans backing Nikki Haley and Democrats ticking the box for uncommitted. Don't know in either case that you can necessarily draw a direct line to what's going to happen in November, although I think Democrats have a little bit bumpier road uh, to consolidate their coalition than, than Republicans do right now. Scott Tong and Peter O'Dowd ask political strategists to weigh in in a few minutes. But first, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky who was first elected to the Senate in 1984 says he will step down from his leadership role in November. NPR's Eric McDaniel joined us with the latest shortly after McConnell's announcement today. Here's Scott. After 17 years leading Republicans in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell is stepping down from the leadership job in November, but he will remain a senator after that. Here's McConnell on the Senate floor. I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. Amy said that day arrived today. Let's bring in NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Hi, Eric. Hey there. The senator appeared to get emotional as he was speaking, perhaps not surprising yeah. given he led the GOP for so many years. Why is he stepping down as leader? Look, he's not a spring chicken. He turned 82 last week. He's the longest serving Senate leader in history. He's been in the Senate 40 years, nearly half his life. He said he first came when Mm. he was 82. He said Ronald Reagan, a president he greatly admired, called him Mitch O'Donnell, which or Mitch O'Connell. He was like, that's close enough. He admired Reagan so much. But he said after a loss in the family recently, he started to think how he'd like to spend the rest of his life. He said it was a part of the grieving process to do that self-reflection. He said, you know, he was surprised to serve as long as he has. Like you mentioned, it's important to know he'll serve through the next uh, Republican leadership election internally in November. And then the remainder of his term as a rank-and-file member through 2026, which he said he's looking forward to. And so as we kind of think about uh, McConnell as the Republican leader, what has he accomplished in all these years for the Republican Party, for the Senate? 
Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to divorce anything that's happened in Congress over the last 40 years, certainly the last two decades from Mitch McConnell. He's a master tactician in Washington. He's known for being particularly good as a master of process and procedures. I should also say just stylistically, he's cut from a totally different cloth from a lot of the high profile sort of pop polish and public speaking politicians we see in mm. contemporary Washington. But I think a few things are worth highlighting here. His deep attention to the judiciary, as I'm sure everyone listening to this will remember, he held a Supreme yeah. Court vacancy open at the end of Barack Obama's term to keep the issue of the high court's control, a conservative majority, a live issue during the 2016 presidential election. It was sort of an unprecedented move, a break with tradition. It upset tons of people, but it's credited with helping a deeply controversial Republican nominee that would be Donald Trump across the finish line. He frequently butted heads with Trump, but part of his record is votes to impeach Trump in both impeachment trials. And that was seen as especially instrumental in protecting Trump during that second impeachment. Yeah. And right now on Capitol Hill, Mitch McConnell has inserted himself into talks on more military funding for Ukraine. I mean, should we think about McConnell as representing the internationalist wing of the party, which many see as a shrinking wing? So, I mean, the deal is now out of the Senate and into the House, right? He's an old school Republican, like you mentioned, in terms of seeing America's role as sort of a robust guarantor of democracy abroad. How much America has done that is you know, an open question, a complicated legacy. But certainly here with Ukraine, McConnell thought it was important to counter Russia to protect Ukraine's democracy. But I think it's notable the fact that he was ultimately unable to bring a majority of his fellow Republicans along with him. It's a sign of how much the party has changed to sort of embrace this anti-alliance America first stance of former President Donald Trump. Yeah. And real quick, who's going to replace him? Do we know? We don't know yet. I mean, I suspect it's going to be in part a fight between three Johns. That would be Senator John Barrasso, Senator John Thune, Senator John Corden, all high profile senators in their own right and to various degrees, kind of establishment figures. But we could also see someone like Rick Scott of Florida, a Senator Rick Scott of Florida, a more Trumpy senator jump in to get involved as well. All right. That is NPR congressional correspondent Eric McDaniel talking about the announcement not too long ago that Republican Senator Mitch McConnell is stepping down from Senate leadership. Eric, thank you. Thank you. Anytime. President Biden and former President Trump won big in Michigan primaries last night. But hold on. There was also a sizable protest vote against both of them. Among Democratic voters, 13 percent chose uncommitted instead of Biden, spurred on by an Arab-American coalition angry at White House support for Israel. Among Republicans, 26 percent chose Nikki Haley over Donald Trump. Are things getting interesting? We have two political strategists joining us now on the right, Jason Cable Rowe, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Jason, hello. Good afternoon. How are you? Uh, Doing well. On the left, we have Jamal Simmons, former communications chief director for Vice President Kamala Harris. Jamal, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Uh, So, Jamal, let me start with you. Uh, Uncommitted won 101,000 votes last night in Michigan. That is 10 times the margin Donald Trump won Michigan by in 2016, almost the margin for Joe Biden in 2020. Is this a warning to the Biden campaign for the general election? Well, it certainly is a um, a flare that the Biden administration, the Biden campaign has some work to do, right? The president's got to get out there in Michigan and spend more time with voters, talk to voters about 
uh, what his plan is, not just for the Middle East, but also for continuing, you know, record unemployment and keeping housing starts up and the economy growing, all the things that are happening right now in Michigan. Um, but the president's got to take some credit for that. But it's clear that there are folks who are not happy with what's happening in the war in Gaza, despite the uh, horrific attack that happened in Israel on October 7th. People are also rightly worried about what's happening to all the kids in Gaza right now. So um, there is a lot of work for the president to do. And I think if he's going to be successful in November, he's going to have to do it. And Jamal, just to stay with you here for one more question, if you look at Dearborn and Hamtramck, these are communities with large Arab American populations. The uncommitted vote won more than half of the vote. And, you know, it sounds like, or going into this primary, that the president was banking on the fact that this pressure would fade as soon as there was an extended ceasefire declared in Gaza. I mean, do you think that'll work for him? I mean, because he hasn't gone into Michigan and done the work that you're that you're saying he needs to do. I mean, well, the un, you know the president won with eighty percent of the vote, so we shouldn't overstate um, um, what happened. But there certainly is a cohort of voters who are looking to hear more from the president on this question. I mean, we, you know, to keep things in keep things in perspective. Um, there are uh, the Donald Trump won with 67, 68% of the vote. So the president's doing better among Democrats and Donald Trump is doing among Republicans. So there are some warning signs on both sides of the ledger. Um, but obviously, again, the Democrats have a lot of work to do. I think the campaign is mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. getting started and they've got to move faster. Yeah. And, and on that other side, uh, adjacent a quarter of Michigan Republicans chose Nikki Haley over over Donald Trump. Is there any sign that they could be kind of never Trumpers that they might abandon Donald Trump in the general election? No, I think just as as the Democrats who voted uh, uncommitted, I, I think uh, yesterday's vote was an opportunity to kind of symbolically express dissatisfaction. Um, and I don't know in either case that you can necessarily draw a direct line to what's going to happen in November, although I think Democrats have a, a little bit bumpier road uh, to consolidate their coalition than, than Republicans do right now. Yeah, you know, I'm from Michigan, and um, um, the area that we're talking about, the politics around the state have really changed very much. Um, and so what you're seeing are uh, Democratic votes that traditionally Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, Chaldean Americans, they didn't really vote for Democrats in the same numbers that they vote today. So on one hand, the president's doing much better among this population than he has, President Biden. And on the other hand, he's clearly got more work to do. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley did not win a single county in Michigan, and yet she told CNN last night she is absolutely staying in the race through Super Tuesday next week. Let's take a listen. We are in a ship with a hole in it. And we can either go down with the ship and watch the country go socialist left, or we can see that we need to take the life raft and move in a new direction. She's not going to win. So should she just get out, you think? Well, I think she should have gotten out after South Carolina. Um, That was her home state. Uh, She outspent Trump 20 to 1 uh, in the state and and still uh, lost by 20 points. Fast forward to Michigan, she lost by 40 points. Um, she doesn't have the financial resources to compete at any level in Super Tuesday. You know, got 15, 16 states and territories. And, you know, Trump ran most of his campaigns without having to spend money, he did most of it on earned media. He's got 100 percent name ID and, and voters already know him. They don't need to see an ad to be convinced one way or the other. And so, you know, I think he's going to run the table. 
I still scratch so, my head Jason, why she remains. But Well, um, exactly. And I want to ask you, Jason, just about that specifically. She says she remains because she wants to give people a choice to vote. I mean, should we take that at face value or does she have some other political strategy going on here? I, it's hard to see a political strategy. I mean, if I had to come up with one, you know, maybe she's banking on that Trump gets disqualified for some reason from being on the ballot, whether it's um, you know, legal troubles or, or, or something else that becomes an impediment and maybe hanging around. Uh, she becomes the last woman standing and, and they pivot, the party pivots to her. But I don't see that. I, I don't think that there's anything that's going to stop Trump. I don't see Republicans changing their opinion, even if there's a conviction on the various uh, trials that he's going through. Um, mm-hmm. It's the state of the Republican Party today. And, and she, I don't think, necessarily represents who the party is today. Yeah. And then, of course, there are the voters who are fans of neither Trump uh, nor Biden. Let's take a listen Listen to Michigander Pashko Wika. He owns the Dodge Park Coney Island restaurant. I don't think either one of them is fit to be the next president of the United States. So, Jamal, if a lot of voters sit out the general election and it's a low turnout election, who does that favor? Well, I don't think anybody on on either side is probably rooting for a low turnout election. I just think we're going for understand, different, but uh, I mean, if 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 we do get low numbers, I mean, what are the polls? What do the strategists suggest? Uh, who that advantage is? Well, it depends on who shows up, right? So, so for the president, for President Trump, I think he's narrow casting. He's got a, a narrower, smaller set of voters who like him, and he needs to get as many of those voters out. For for Joe Biden, his voters kind of touch a lot of different constituencies at the same time. So he doesn't need to get as many of each constituency. He just needs to get a bigger raw number. So um, it it just depends on where the passion ultimately lies. And I think with Joe Biden, he has the benefit of having Donald Trump on the other side, which really does animate Democratic voters to say, I just don't want to go back to the chaos that we had before Joe Biden was here. I don't want to think about injecting bleach if we have another pandemic. I just want to have somebody who can manage the problems that we have. And the one thing I know as as tumultuous as the world is today is adding Donald Trump to the mix is not going to calm things down. Jason, let's move from Michigan to Washington, D.C., because there are several federal agencies that could shut down on Friday unless Congress passes a partial spending bill. Here we go again. The holdouts are the House Republicans on the right. Do they need to come to a solution here or get blamed if there's a shutdown? Well, I mean, you said said it well. Um, Here we go again. I mean, I I think in terms of how people view this, um, they're desensitized. I mean, just like the years of Trumpism have desensitized people to Trump. I think, um, you know, the what is this, our third potential uh, government shutdown of the year? I don't yes. think, you know, people believe that it's going to happen. And, you know, it, it really the gamesmanship, it depends on how it plays out. Um, I think both will blame the other. Um, neither seems to ever be willing to uh, budge on what their position is. And, you know, I think to some degree, voters just see it all as one big mess. And I don't know if one party or the other will take the blame. I think, frankly, people will go into their corners and and regardless, based on their perspective, they'll blame the other team. And I think that'll happen on both sides. 
I just have yeah, to push well, back on that for one second because the, the Democrats tried to pass a bill to fund Ukraine, fund Israel, and they were willing to go along with border protections that they never would have gone along with before. Republicans in the Senate were even willing to go along with it and some in the House. But until Donald Trump said, don't do it because it'll help Joe Biden, that got the speaker and everyone else to not push that bill and get it across the finish line. I think Democrats are willing to do a deal. It's just that Republicans are trying to play politics, and that's what's getting in the way of us getting anything accomplished right now. Yeah. Well, well, Jamal. Uh, I mean, kind of. Let me pose this question to you on the Demo- on the on the Democrat side. Separately, there are talks to get more aid to Ukraine. Uh, and the House Speaker Mike Johnson says before that passes, President Biden needs to use his executive authority to tighten the southern border. So, as far as you know, coming to the table, do you expect the White House to respond? accordingly, uh, with an executive action on the border to get the money to Ukraine. Well, again, the president and the Democrats have already moved. I think the president will move again and probably take some action. But that's going to just call the Republicans bluff. They don't want to do a deal (laughs) with the president that they think will help him. They're just trying to box him in. And the, and the, the American public is suffering because a priority that everyone seems to agree upon, the majority of Democrats, the majority of Republicans, the majority of the Senate, yet Donald Trump says no, and it doesn't happen. Jason, we have less than a minute, so we're going to end here. And I want to go uh, to this issue of the border again, because both men are going to be at the border tomorrow, Biden in Brownsville, Trump in Eagle Pass. What are you watching for here as they both try to get the advantage on this very controversial issue? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see how far Biden is willing to go on being tough on the border. I think we know where Trump will be. We know what rhetoric to expect. But this definitely is a pivot from an administration that for you know most of the last year has denied that the problem was as bad as it is. And so I'll be curious to see how he frames uh, that visit and how he frames the actions that he intends to take. Yeah. We will be covering tomorrow Jason Cable Rowe, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, Jamal Simmons, former communications director for Vice President Kamala Harris. Thanks to you both. Coming up next, cybersecurity experts are sounding the alarm about threats Chinese hackers pose to U.S. infrastructure. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This week, the Department of Energy announced a new $45 million effort to protect the country's energy sector from cyber attacks. And last week, President Biden signed an executive order to beef up cybersecurity at U.S. ports. 
FBI Director Christopher Wray has been sounding the alarm about cybersecurity threats from China in particular. And so has Karim Hijazi. He's a former intelligence contractor and founder and CEO of Vigilocity, a cybersecurity company. He spoke to Peter O'Dowd. So Christopher Ray says it is the threat of our generation. He talked about Chinese hackers targeting water treatment plants, our electrical grid, natural gas pipelines. How serious is this? It's quite serious. Unfortunately, those in the community know that this is not actually a new issue. Unfortunately, this has finally reached a, a peak level where I think it's hit mainstream awareness. In the old days, the Chinese were, uh, the, at least the nation-state actors, not the Chinese people, obviously, uh, were focused on intellectual property pursuits. Uh, this is a bit of a shift in their methodology. It's more akin to what we'd find from other nation-state actors. And so it is a little bit of a alarming change that, that uh, obviously is uh, getting everyone's attention in the industry and, and from government as well. If you were to take just one of those threats, uh, for example, the water treatment plant, what's the mm-hmm. risk? What could a hacker do? The concern here is that the systems that run these plants that uh, move water from one zone to another or any kind of factory or what we call operational technology environment, they're very fragile and they're quite old. And so that's part of the reason why it's been such a wonderful attack vector for these these groups because they're not very well updated the manufacturers that have built a lot of these things are not even in business anymore. So the retrofitting mm-hmm. to get them up to speed is problematic. The implication of it is that take something like water, if you secretly change the pH levels in a, in a water treatment environment, for example, you can cause a mass dysentery effect across a population quite quickly without anyone really knowing where it's coming from. And that can cause a further pressurization on things like hospitalizations, and then you can cascade it with attacks on things like power. Not to mention that simply overloading certain systems can put these places out of business, meaning out of operation for some period of time, which means people aren't getting water. There's all kinds of implications there uh, that that people haven't really thought about, because everything is controlled essentially by computers at this point. And so... Therein lies the efficiency and the risk at the same time. And the risk. I want to ask you about one more example because I think these are illustrative of the fact that so many of these things we just completely take for granted. So, for instance, uh, President Biden's order increased security at ports, which includes money to build more cranes in the United Mm -hmm. States to replace cranes made in China at our ports. Why a crane? So ransomware has been a problem because it's not only a problem for people losing access to their data, but it puts them out of commission to work. And if there was the ability for someone to remotely affect some of these larger devices like cranes with some sort of backdoor to them due to the fact that they were manufactured in said country, uh, they could shut them down remotely and put us in a very difficult position to continue operations. So Mm. part of this kind of has a sprawling effect with regard to all the infrastructure and equipment and technology we've used from these locations that may very well have implants, we'll call them, that are persistently in there waiting to be called upon to turn something off, override something, create more damage rather than something beneficial. But I guess the question is why? I mean, we're, we're talking about China trying to infiltrate the United States infrastructure to find these weaknesses, sure. but why would they want to do that? What's motivating them to invest so much time and money and energy? Well, it's a great question. You know, I think that Mr. Ray really kind of articulated clearly that there's a belief that there's going to be a, an impending 
we'll call it hot or kinetic incursion or, or threat of a some war. kind. We don't quite know what or where. And, you know, chaos, seeding chaos, uh, disunity, lack of communications, or a shutdown of communications and health systems can be the first very effective stage in any kind of attack. And the FBI director, Christopher Wray, also had uh, a concerning statistic about hacking in China when he testified before the House committee last month. Let's listen to him. If you took every single one of the FBI's cyber agents and intelligence analysts and focused them exclusively on the China threat, China's hackers would still outnumber FBI cyber personnel by at least 50 to 1. 50 to 1? Uh, is that true? And if it is, how outmatched are we? Yes, it's, it's indeed true, and it's only grown in the last, say, five to ten years. The good news with this is that we have talent that is effectively still unsurpassed on a global level, so we do still have a, a sufficient and substantial way to defend ourselves, but it just can't be overlooked that there's an increasingly large and um, increasingly educated group that are starting to come out into these groups because they're motivated. They have a lot of methods to get these people to come on in and try for rewards. They get houses, they get uh, cars, they get all kinds of perks for doing things for their mother country, uh, which makes this all the more difficult. It's all the more reason why public and private sector have to cooperate in, in times like this. A spokesman for the Chinese embassy in Washington told the Wall Street Journal that uh, it's paranoia to think that, for example, Chinese cranes could pose a threat to the United States uh, and said that floating the China threat theory is irresponsible and will harm the interests of the United States itself. Uh, What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think everything has to be taken in a measured way. I mean, quite frankly, you know, cranes are interesting, uh, certainly. They're not the first thing I would have said we probably ought to consider manufacturing in country. I would probably first say let's go with transformers for our power grid. Nonetheless, I think the reality is that the fact that we're so utterly reliant on infrastructure that has indeed been manufactured in places that we've not had oversight is a concern. So I don't think it's an overreach to say we should be thinking about all things that we rely on heavily, that we don't even know we rely on as far as what where they are made. We would do the same if we felt it was not made in a proper way. Uh, the fact that we're thinking about it from the perspective that there may be an implant that could affect its operation is good foresight and, from a security standpoint, uh, the right thing to do. Kareem Hijazi is a former intelligence contractor and founder of Vigilocity. It's a cybersecurity company. Kareem, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up, Final Fantasy is a funny title for a video game franchise that just pumped out its 16th mainline installment, not to mention dozens of spinoffs and remasters in the decades it's been around. Nothing final about it, really. And in the case of one beloved entry, Final Fantasy VII, even the original game, which was widely considered a masterpiece when it came out in 1997, wasn't the final word. After the break, James Master Marino talks about the epic project of remaking FF7 and what the whole affair has to say about remakes in general. Your new game starts after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. 
And that includes tax strategies. That includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Tomorrow, Leap Day, brings a long-awaited video game remake. At last, the time has come. We're talking about Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. It's the second title in a trilogy, remaking a revolutionary game from 1997. Now, remakes are common in the gaming world, but this one seeks to take a familiar story to very new places. Here and now is James Mastro Marino reports. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth doesn't take long to introduce you to its grand open world. Just look at it all. It's so green. Just like the 1997 game it's based on, it's about ragtag heroes fighting against a power company that's literally stealing the planet's life force. A living, breathing planet. Even after everything we've done to it, it's still going strong. It may look that way, but in reality, it's barely hanging on. The game also brings back its iconic villain, Sephiroth. I'm waiting. For series producer Yoshinori Kitase, it's a homecoming. Here he is speaking through an interpreter. In remaking this story, we've taken this widely recognized narrative and reconstructed it as a new story that reflects the destiny of the characters. Kitase produced the original Final Fantasy VII in 1997. It was a technological marvel and became a cultural juggernaut in and outside of Japan. I remember people just like clamoring to import it and get their hands on it. That's Rebecca Valentine, senior reporter for the gaming website IGN. Everybody was moving about in like full blocky polygonal glory. Like like just it was visually striking immediately at a time when not a lot of games were doing that. And now, nearly 30 years later, that technological innovation has reached its apex. It's like the vision in our heads that we had as kids and teenagers or whatever age we were when we first played this game of what this world was actually like, bringing that to life in like a really modern way. All right, let's get this show on the road, people. Rebirth director Naoki Hamaguchi feels like the new game's updated animation gives the creators a chance to do what they always intended to do. Here he is, also speaking through an interpreter. By remaking the story in this day and age, I think we're now able to show these details in Rebirth that could not be expressed in the original. Things like the emotions of the characters, down to the finer details of the worldview, which couldn't be noticed in the original work, are now depicted in great detail within this new title. That detail heightens the drama of the game's opening flashback scene. You killed my mom. You killed Tifa, my village. 
My home! But hours later, the game slows down, giving you time to challenge strangers to card games or race birds the size of horses. Then later in the game, there's something that couldn't have happened in the original, a spontaneous choreographed song and dance number. But it's not all fun in minigames. Series producer Yoshinori Kitase says putting the old characters in new situations deepens them. The biggest theme for us going from the original to Rebirth was deciding what kind of fate awaits Aerith. Aerith's one of the game's beloved playable characters. She serves a crucial role in the story, but this time, her fate and the fate of her companions take on a new unexpected resonance. The question of how the protagonists will fight against that fate and how they will face it is a new theme unique to the remake series. Final Fantasy VII Rebirths also coming out at an uncertain time for the series and for the PlayStation as a whole. There is an infinite possibility of how we can explore Final Fantasy as a game. That's Naoki Yoshida, speaking through an interpreter. He produced last year's Final Fantasy XVI, a more action-focused game that polarized fans and didn't sell as well as his company hoped. My message is, I just want people to broaden their sort of horizon, so to speak, to, to just open up their perspective. But Sony's been making cuts to its gaming portfolio, and it looks like the PlayStation won't be getting any big exclusive games after Rebirth in 2024. They kind of need to hit a home run with this one. And I, I, I mean, I've seen the reviews come out, and it seems like they probably have. Again, IGN reporter Rebecca Valentine. Everybody's remaking games, but they're sort of playing with the idea of what a remake actually is, or what it means to retell the same story a second time. And I think there's some people who are a little worried about that, who, you know, want it to be completely faithful and don't want things to change or don't want to question whether they can change. But I don't know. I think it's good to ask those questions. It's too early to say a Final Fantasy VII Rebirth will be the shot in the arm that Sony and its developer need. But director Naoki Hamaguchi hopes it will become a new classic. Now that nearly 30 years have passed since its initial release, we also think it's very important that this title creates a legacy that can be passed on to new generations for another 20 or 30 years with this new expression. For Here and Now, I'm James Master Marino. Here's hoping you can still race chocobos in this one. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Gabrielle Healy, Lynn Menegon, Jill Ryan, and James Mastro Marino. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto, Caleb Green, and Michaela Varela. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. 
Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.